0: Every family has, um, you know, in our family, we've all got um, what do you something that we're famous for. Uh, my daughter Chloe's here this morning. I didn't think she was going to be here, so I'm going to embarrass her. But Chloe is famous in our family for hating fish. She hates fish. And if ever we made anything with fish in it, you know, we'd try and hide it from her so she wouldn't know. Or um, we make a, a really lovely salmon pate. It's cold. It's cold. Put it in the fridge. And we say to Chloe, Chloe, can you get the salmon pate? She get the oven mitts to get the container with the salmon pate. It was like toxic waste. So Chloe's famous for her, her dislike of fish. One of the things I'm famous for in our family is that I make up words, don't I? And my children and my husband love to mock me for the words that I make up. Does anybody else do this? Or am I just, thank you, Kate, I I thank you. There are actually other people in the world that do this funny thing called make up words. And one of my famous words that I use is blapper. So if I say to the kids, can you get me the blapper? They just like roll their eyes at me. Not about you, but that word to me, it, it is very descriptive. It means the e-tag remote. It means the remote control for the garage. It, it means the remote. You know when you've got to press a button and get into something and it makes that bleeping noise? You can't call it a bleeper because that just, you know, that, you know it's a bit similar to a beeper, so I made it a blapper. Does that make sense? I think it's a great word. Now, I've got a picture. Do you know what? They're called. You know those when you go to the games and you make they kind of blow up and you do know what they're called? Blappers. I didn't just make the word up, it's a real word, you see? I'm I'm intuitive. I knew these things. You know, making up words, Christianity's actually made up a lot of words over the centuries. It makes up these words to describe a doctrine or a theory or a belief or you know. A whole bunch of things. And these words sometimes are a bit like blappy. You go, what the heck are you talking about? What does it really mean? So some of those words might be atonement, propitiation. Propitiation. trying to say that fast. Not good. Justification. Sanctification. Dispensationalism. Redemption. Now, I just picked some, you know, just a few. But the one I want to talk about today is one called Incarnation. It's Christmas time and we are doing a series on Jesus the human, the human one. And the word incarnation comes from the Latin word incarnus, meaning in flesh. And the word incarnation literally means God becoming flesh, God taking on human form. That is why this time of year is such an incredible thing because it is the time we celebrate this forming, this thing where Jesus becomes human. In John 1, chapter 1, verse 3. This this opening passage of John, you will know them off by heart, probably in the version that you are used to reading, but listen to it in this version. Just listen with a different ear. This talks about the divinity of Jesus, who he is, who he was, seated with God, creator of the heavens. In the beginning, the living expression was already there. And the living expression was with God, yet fully God. They were together face to face in the very beginning. And through his creative inspiration, this living expression, made all things, for nothing has existence apart from him. This, this, you know, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, this is the divinity. This is talking about the divinity of Jesus. But if we go on to verse 14... It says this, And so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is the human Jesus this is the incarnation, the beginning of the Jesus story. God becoming flesh and living in our skin. So recently the um, SBS ran a series uh, called uh, Filthy Rich and Homeless. And so it's a series that took uh, five very wealthy people. Um, I only know one there. Uh, Is it Cameron Datto? He's the only one I knew when I looked at the the list of people, but apparently they're all, you know, pretty well-known. And they actually go and live on the streets for 10 days. They have no ID. They have no phone. They have no money. They're giving a sleeping bag, and they go live on the streets for 10 days in Sydney to experience homelessness and what that's like and how difficult and confronting that is. And I really think that's a great picture of what Jesus has done. And the thing that um, when we moved from uh, Sydney to Melbourne, uh, which was well, eleven nearly twelve years ago now, we moved down here, we were unknown. Nobody knew us, nobody knew what we 'd done, where we 'd been, no one knew our churches that we had previously led, no one could see our track history. We came and we were unknown and that 's actually a really um, I don't know scary is not the right word, but it 's a humbling thing to come with, with no you know, nothing behind you. You couldn't say, oh, do you know so-and-so? Or, you know, do you you know that? Because it's in a different state and most people had no idea. And so you you were very laid bare in my eyes. It was kind of like you either took me on what you saw and that was it. You know, I had no history that I could draw on with you. And so for Jesus, even more so, for Jesus, even more so, He left the glory of heaven. He left the majesty, his divinity in heaven to come to earth. No phone, no ID, no money. And not just for 10 days, but for a lifetime. He lived in our skin. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. I must admit, this is nearly one of my most favorite pieces of scripture. He existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. He was a perfect example. He was a perfect example. Even in his death. A criminal's death by crucifixion. The profound um, sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Not just in his, But just in coming... And taking on human form, the incarnation, God in flesh. So, I want to have a look at this whole aspect of incarnation and what it means Jesus, the human one. So, point one is that that term, the human one, why do we say that one? What is that? You know, it's what, uh, you know, part of what we've claimed this series to be, the human one. And when Jesus turned himself, if you look through the Gospels, Uh, particularly through the book of Matthew, Jesus claims himself to be the son of man. He doesn't use the the word Lord or King or Messiah or Christ, the words that we would put to him, but he used the term son of man. And that term son of man actually means human one. And it occurs within scripture in in the Old Testament about 107 times. Most of those are in Ezekiel. And it uses the term son of man in, in, in like a, I don't know if the word's the right word, just, juxtaposition, you know, that thing that it's the, the humanity compared to the divinity, the son of man. But in the book of Daniel, it uses the term son of man, and it's very clearly a reference to the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the son of man. And so when Jesus declares himself the son of man, that's what he is known as throughout the Gospels, then it's, it's a reference, a messianic, messianic reference that is picked up there. Brian McLaren says this great quote, and uh, uh, Nikki and I have a current love of the uh, Eastern Orthodox religion, don't we, Nikki? And uh, you'll love it even more after this little uh, section. Brian McLaren says this, the Eastern Orthodox Jesus saves simply by being born, by showing up, by coming amongst us. Then you kind of go, what's the power in that? Where's the power in that? Where's the incredible, you know, sort of to, for Jesus to say just by simply coming? So I want to read you a story that um, Brian McLaren writes. And it's based on um, Athanasius. He was a 4th century um, church leader and uh, he has this story about the incarnation. He was very much, um, very is one of his greatest themes with Athanasius was the story of incarnation. So relax and just enjoy this little story, this little, do not go to sleep, all right? I'm not reading you to sleep. Once upon a time there was a good and kind king who had a great kingdom with many cities. In one distant city, Some people took advantage of the freedom the king gave them and started doing evil. They profited by their evil and began to fear that the king would interfere and throw them into jail. Eventually, these rebels seethed with hatred for the king. They convinced the city that everyone would be better off without the king, and the city declared its independence from the kingdom. But soon, with everyone doing whatever they wanted, Disorder reigned in the city. There was violence, hatred, lying, oppression, murder, rape, slavery and fear. The king thought, what should I do? If I take my army and conquer the city by force, the people will fight against me. And I'll have to kill so many of them and the rest will only submit through fear or intimidation, which will make them hate me and all I stand for even more. How does that help them? To be either dead or imprisoned or secretly seething with rage. But if I leave them alone, they'll destroy each other and it breaks my heart to think of the pain they're causing and experiencing. So the king did something very surprising. He took off his robes, And dressed in the rags of a homeless wanderer. Incognito, he entered the city and began living in a vacant lot near a garbage dump. He took up a trade fixing broken pottery and furniture. Whenever people came to him, his kindness and goodness and fairness and respect were so striking that they would linger just to be in his presence. They would tell him their fears and questions and ask his advice. He told them that the rebels had fooled them, that the true king had a better way to live, which he exemplified and taught. One by one, then two by two, and then by hundreds, people began to have confidence in him and live in his way. Their influence spread to others and the movement grew and grew until the whole city regretted its rebellion and wanted to return to the kingdom again. But ashamed of their horrible mistakes, they were afraid to approach the king, believing he would certainly destroy them for their rebellion. But the king in disguise told them the good news. He was himself the king, and he loved them. He held nothing against them, and he welcomed them back into his kingdom, having accomplished by a gentle, subtle presence what never could have been accomplished through brute force. I love that story, and I think that's a powerful... And that is why the Eastern Orthodox love Christmas. It is, the, it is their highlight of their calendar. It is the incarnation. It is the fact that by showing up, Jesus saves simply by showing up and coming amongst us. So not only is he the son of man, the human one, but he's also... Jesus is also has human limitations, just like we have limitations, so uh, our um, next uh, slide—we all know who this is, and we all know what he's got, what he's fighting against is kryptonite. It's Superman and kryptonite. And uh, I had a little Google search on all the weaknesses for the superheroes. There are some really bizarre ones out there. Let me tell you, uh, one of them is asbestos. Needless to say, that superhero is not that great these days, you know, he doesn't, uh, but, you know, no matter the superhero, they've all got a weakness, they've all got a limitation, you know, when I was growing up, I used to think, you know, uh, that Jesus was like a superhero that had no limitations, anybody else have that kind of thought of Jesus, you know, it didn't matter what he did, he could just, you know, wave his arms and it all happen and, you know, it'd all be fine, you know, I have grown a little in my theology and understanding of Jesus, Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says this And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Jesus didn't know everything when he was born, he wasn't endowed with, with all knowledge and understanding. Like you and I, he had to grow in that. He had to grow in his wisdom and his understanding. He had to learn. In the Philippians 2 chapter where he says he emptied himself and he took on human form just like you and I and he had to grow in that. In Mark chapter 8 uh, verses 22 to 25, there is the story of Jesus healing the blind man. I'm sure most of you know this story. It is the story where Jesus prays for him and he spits and when I read it, I kind of going, did he actually spit directly on his eyes or on his hands? Because he doesn't say spit, you know, like, anyway, we're not going to go there. But he, there was spit involved, let me just tell you that. And he laid hands on the man's eyes and he prayed. And then he asked the man, how are you? And he goes, oh, well, I can see people walking around that look like trees, so it wasn't, his vision wasn't really clear. It wasn't, you know, wave your hand and wave your magic wand and bang. You know, he was, Jesus prayed again. And then the man was able to see clearly. Now, there has been much debate over these passages in the book of Mark. Uh, apparently, I haven't read them, may I say, there have been PhDs written on spit, Mike, have you read any of those? No, you haven't read them either? I'm thinking, my goodness me, three years of your life on spit. But, you know, in the ancient world, saliva, you know, how the ancients viewed saliva, that it had miraculous healing power. That, that's, what, that's what they believed on saliva. There's also much debate as to... You know, really, Jesus, did he have to lay hands on the man twice to heal him? You know, he was Jesus. He was, he was God. He was the son of God. He could just lay hands and he would be healed. So why did he do it twice? Was he trying to teach the disciples a lesson? Was he trying to say to the disciples, you know, you're not seeing things clearly. You, you got things a bit out of perspective. You don't really know who I am and you need to actually realize, you know, who I truly am. So, there's all these great theology, you know, scholars, and, you know, they wrestle over this, but I'm just me. I'm sorry. I'm just me. And I just go, to me, it could also look like that Jesus had limitations, just like you and I. And just like we pray, and some things don't happen, that we need to pray again. That he was human, just like you and I. Not everything he touched turned to gold. He had the same limitations you and I did. He hurt. He knew pain. He he knew what it was to sweat and to cry and to grieve and to get angry. He knew what it was to be joyful and happy. He had the same limitations as you or I. The third thing about the incarnation that I want to share on is that the incarnation demonstrates human potential. The incarnation affirms our humanity. In the book of Genesis, it to- tells the creation story. And it talks about how God created humanity, he created the world, all that is in it, he created humanity. And in the end, he said it was very good. He didn't say, "Oh, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. He said, it is very good. That was God's mark. That was God's stamp. That was God's declaration over humanity. It was very good. I think that um, Christianity for me has been a focus on, you are not very good and we need to make you better. Whereas... I believe the incarnation comes and re-establishes that humanity is very good. Jesus is the prototype, the blueprint of the new humanity that was brought into being. He is an example of what a life lived in partnership with God looks like. You know, Jesus... Showed us to always love. That the sun will rise and the rain will fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And no matter what, we always love. Jesus showed us to always forgive, to look his betrayer in the eye and call him friend. I don't know about you, but that is one of those difficult things to do, those people that speak nasty to you, that are critical of you, that betray you, to look them in the eye and call them friends, who always forgive. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive 70 times 7, a new type of humanity, an example of what is possible for each and every one of us. to always serve for the son of man came not to be served but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many i have the privilege of being married to a man who is a servant and i have been on the receiving end far more than he has of that you know he's just served me and blessed me and it's an incredible thing and it's you know and jesus is that he's that servant he he just served us He served all of humanity. He was always humble. Jesus was not arrogant. He did not lord it over people. He was always humble. He was always non-violent and never vindictive. You know, Peter rose up and he cut the ear off. The servant or the, um, what was it, the soldier at Gethsemane. Jesus just put his ear back on. And as Steve, I think, once said, if it was me, I would have put it back on the middle of his head or something like that, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but Jesus wasn't vindictive. He was nonviolent. He was generous. Jesus was generous. Generous with his love. You know, he, he, he sat With the tax collector. He was with the the Samaritan woman at the well. He fed the 5,000. He felt for them, these people that had followed him. He was generous of heart. He was just, always just. You know, he would critique and he would call out the religious and political and economic systems that were unjustly oppressing people. He didn't keep quiet on those things. You know what he did in the temple. You know, the injustice. He called out the Pharisees. He overturned tables. You know, what he said about the Pharisees. But he was just. He didn't favour anyone. He all were welcome. You know, that's the beauty of communion, the communion table. it's It's an equal table. No matter who you are, we're all welcome. That was the example that Jesus has given us. You know... Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus is talking about that, the whole aspect. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the nature and the character of God is like, you've seen me, you've seen my life, you've seen the Father. Well, I want to take that just one step further. And I want to say, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen yourself redeemed. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen what your life potential is. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen what a life lived in relationship with God is like. Jesus has come back to redeem humanity, to redeem it from its sense of feeling like it's not good and it's unworthy, and it's of no use, and it has no value. Jesus came and added value back to humanity by coming and becoming the human one. I know you hate it when you've had a thought and it goes out the window, and i are thinking, now, what was that thought again? It was really good. Hopefully it'll come back before the message is over. In John 2, 18 to 22... It talks the story of Jesus destroying the temple. You know, Jesus gets up and he proclaims and, you know, obviously this causes a bit uh, bit of an issue and it's part of the reason he was arrested. But he says that I will destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And people obviously took that literally as he was standing in the temple. And I think it took 46 years for that temple to be built. And so, you know, they didn't think that was possible. But we know now that he was referring to his own body. And the thing is that the temple is the place where God and people meet. It's a meeting place for God and for people. It's where they can come together. And so really, if Jesus calls himself the temple, that is the place where God and humans meet. Jesus is an example of god and humans meeting together. Athanasius again said this quote and I and I ask you to listen to the words but also listen to the explanation afterwards. God became man that man might become god. And I'll say that again. God became man that man might become God. So what what does that mean? Is, Is Athanasius saying that, you know, we're going to become God? And they put it like this. God enters into humanity to lift it up. He divinizes, he makes humanity divine by coming becoming flesh, becoming incarnate. And our humanity becomes divine because we now, because of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living within us. We are now the temple where God lives, that we also become God. In this season, this Advent season, this Christmas season... We've done a series to explain and explore the whole thing about Jesus becoming human, the human one, the son of man, becoming incarnate, making his home amongst us. To be an example, to be one that demonstrated, be the prototype, the blueprint of what it really means to be human, to be a temple where God and humans dwell together. I pray as you go through the Christmas season that you will appreciate and reflect on the incarnation, the power that Jesus saves simply by being born, by showing up, by coming amongst us. Let's pray. God, we come with very grateful hearts. God, that a king would come off his throne and would become human, that he would dwell amongst us, that he would be in our skin. God, we are grateful. And God, I pray that as we go through this season, this Christmas season, that you would help and reveal to us more and more, God, your incarnation, what it really means. God, let us understand and know you more and see you more, I pray. Amen and amen.